You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to this week's Healthcare Insight. You're on America's Web Radio, and this is Ron Bachman. Normally, we talk about healthcare, private market, free market, healthcare solutions. And, you know, we're so far away from that right now, especially under the Biden administration as implementing so many so-called progressive, but they're really socialist policies across the board that I've backed up in the last few weeks. I want to talk about the foundation on which this country is based and some of the ideas that need to be challenged before we can actually get to talking about the practical things like health care reform, health insurance reform. Because without some changing understanding of what's going on in this country, we are edging closer and closer to a socialist society. So today I want to take a YouTube program and do like I've done in some of the other more recent segments, and that is to have a virtual interview, if you will, with some of the outstanding conservative minds in this country. And one of those is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute, Thomas Sowell. Now, Thomas Sowell has been around for a long time. He is a black American who has real strong opinions and unbelievably practical ideas about some of the history of this country, where we've gotten with things like redistribution of wealth and the education of Americans and how things have changed over time. He's very much focused on data. He's a scientist by background in that he looks at the real data about what's happening in this country and compares different eras of this country, past to the present. But he also takes a look at what's happening in other countries around the world and compares it to the United States and gives examples that are clear and obvious about what's going on Because so many of us in this country, especially the new generation, doesn't know about our history, doesn't think about anything other than what they see in front of them today. And so I want to talk and have this dialogue and bring forth a YouTube presentation with my own sort of questions and commentary on Thomas Sowell. Now, the original YouTube is an interview by Peter Robinson of the Hoover Institute. And so you'll hear him jump in every once in a while in all likelihood. But I want to talk to Thomas Sowell and bring forth his ideas to this audience because it's so important that people start to learn the truth and not the propaganda that they've been fed and not buy into the social justice issues, the redistribution of wealth, the, the, the white privilege that uh, supposedly exists, our institutional racism. So I want to start today with talking to Thomas Sowell about the prevailing social vision that we're under and talk about something that Barack Obama really started to emphasize at the presidential political level back in 2012, 2008, when he talked about redistribution of wealth. So I want to ask Dr. Sowell to talk about this idea that Okay, if economic benefits are not due to individual merit, now that we don't earn what it is that we have, that it just happens by stance or some biases that exist, 
wouldn't there then be some justification for having politicians redistribute that wealth? So sort of the comment that you didn't build this industry, you didn't build this wealth, it came from other people, and so I have a right as a politician to take it from you and give it to somebody else. Dr. Soule, give us your thoughts on the ideas of redistribution of wealth. You can imagine now, I'll take the extreme case where someone is literally no merit. He, he, know, he knows, he inherits some uh, empire, I don't know, like grocery stores or whatever. He knows nothing about it, cares nothing about it, hasn't a clue how to run it and so on. You say, well, clearly you turn it over to the politicians. Well, what's he going to do with that empire? It will be worth far more to almost anybody else than it would be to him. Now, when things have radically different values to different people, what all, what, what usually happens in a marketplace is it, it transfers to somebody else. If it's worth $2 billion to him, somebody who knows what he's doing, it may be worth $5 billion to him. And he will pay the $5 billion to get it. And he will run it better than a politician is going to run it. Okay, let's talk about how things have changed over time. Because in your book, let me quote it. You say, during the 20th century, the key factor behind socioeconomic disparities, as seen by leading progressive intellectuals of that era, was genetics. So that was a racist argument that black people had a ceiling that they couldn't get beyond, that they were just intellectually inferior. That was actually a a proposition that was made uh, during the 20th century. But we know that that's not true. So how would they explain the higher IQ of many black Americans? Why are you surprised that there are black children with IQs of 115 and above? That In the, in the earlier time, in the early 20th century, uh, it was thought that there was a ceiling so low that you had to make sure that certain people simply did not reproduce. That's the whole eugenics movement, right. which was very big. And there were eugenics courses by the hundreds in uh, colleges and universities across the country. Uh, and so Jensen reject, rejects that kind of rendition of it. Well, once you've rejected that, really, it, it, the rest of it becomes a matter of uh, much smaller consequence. So clearly, the argument about racism and the inferiority of one race over another one is rejected on scientific grounds. Yes, rather than by rhetoric. Okay, so this brings us to the second point that you make in your book. It says, by the late 20th century, discrimination had become the prevailing explanation. So it's all about discrimination. It's not racism saying one race is better or worse than the other one genetically. That's been disproven scientifically. And your book goes on to say that at the heart of the prevailing social vision of our times is a seemingly invincible fallacy that group outcomes in human endeavors would tend to be equal or at least comparable or random if there was no biased intervention. So this is the whole idea of, for example, um, white privilege, that if the system is biased, then we're going to get different outcomes because if the system wasn't biased, everybody would have some similar outcomes. Everybody would be 
uh, equal in the sense of the production and the results that they have in their life and their in their endeavors that you would have an equal distribution of people from uh, the black community, the white community, the Asian community, the Pakistani community, whatever that community is, that we would all wind up being very equal if there wasn't some underlying bias. So could you give us some better explanation of why that's a fallacy? Well, empirically, it is the easiest way to explain it. Uh, Almost nowhere anywhere in the world or in any period of history do you find any society in which groups that compete uh, openly end up with the same results. Uh, as, on, the, on, the, on the genetic side, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, there's, there's a study of uh, families where someone, one of the kids, becomes a National Merit, Merit Scholarship final, uh, finalist. In five-child families, the firstborn becomes the finalist more times than the other four siblings combined. Now, that's not genetic. Uh, there, there are other... There, there, actually, it's also not discrimination. It's just luck, birth order, the luck of the draw. Well, but it's more, it's more than that. It tells us something about the importance of parental attention in the development of a child. Uh, and that's also reinforced by the fact that twins tend to average several points lower IQ than people born singly. Because, obviously, no, neither twin ever gets the full attention of the, par- of the parents. And also, backing that up, is that where one of the twin is either stillborn or dies shortly after birth, the other twin, twin has a, an average IQ much closer to the norm. So, Professor Sol, you're dispelling the idea that, first, it's um, racism. You're dispelling the idea that the difference in uh, accumulated wealth or in uh, the outcome that we have in a competitive society, that it's from discrimination or some sort of uh, internal bias. So let's go on and let's talk about some of the other issues that you think might be playing into the difference outcomes that we see. It's true in Britain and Norway and any other, all, a number of other countries where there have been huge uh, tests done. So, Dr. Sowell, what I'm hearing you say is that people many times have a natural skill that they develop themselves, a certain proclivity for certain occupations or professions that either comes to them from their education, their history, their culture, their background. There's a lot more involved in the idea that, well, there's not equal outcomes. Um, There's so many other issues that should be taken into consideration of how people live and work together, but... We used to work together uh, taking those skills of each individual, each group, and apply it across the board and live together harmoniously. In fact, let me quote from another section of your book where you say, It might seem strange that during the 19th century era of mass migration from Europe to the United States, it wasn't uncommon to find Jewish and Italian neighborhoods in New York represented by Irish politicians in a situation that did not change until well into the 20th century. So people brought their proclivities, their interests, their backgrounds, their culture, their education, their family exposure in various and sundry ways that led them to certain occupations, some of which may be valued more, that they'd make more money at, and some where they make less. And so it's not genetics that develops it. 
It's not discrimination. It's not internal bias. It's not systemic bias. It's just the way life works that people have differences, and that's true across the world and over the eons of time. So tell me how all this works together and has worked so well in the past. Of course, if you look at the history of the three groups, it's clear that the Irish had a lot more political uh, experience in Europe before, before any of them ever set foot on American soil. I mean, it, it's really, an, when you think of how many factors uh, there are at work, it's incredible to think that they're going to work out the same for, 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 for almost any group uh, uh, defined anyway. The other thing that's so mm-hmm. frustrating, I, I, can, I can come up with umpteen different examples of this, this, uh, disparities in various situations, including situations where it's not possible for it to be either discrimination or, uh, or, or genetics. People on the other side cannot give you one example. You can read reams of paper by advocates of social justice and not find one example anywhere in the world. There are people who have done international studies. Broadell, I quote, the French historian. historian. He said, in no society has all all parts of the uh, uh, population had the same outcomes. Dr. Sol, this is fascinating stuff. It's a different kind of a history than most of us learn, different kind of perspective, I think, that's out there in the general public. So Let's take a quick commercial break, and I want to come back with this discussion and segmenting areas of your book that's entitled Discrimination and Disparities. It is so topical for exactly what's going on in the news today. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, and the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised your right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmbhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Healthcare Insight here on America's Web Radio. And today we are talking to one of the great thinkers of our time, Thomas Sowell, who happens to be a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute. Now, he's talking about a new book that he's written called Discrimination and Disparities. And it is very topical to everything we're hearing in the news today about redistribution of wealth, about white privilege, about racism. And this is a man who knows what he's talking about. He is a black American who has experienced uh, a life change from where he started to where he is today and has a unique perspective, having lived a life 
in this country. He's seen the changes, and he sees the impact of what policies have made and has a view that we really don't have a society that's built on racism and that disparities are a natural outcome of life. And victimization uh, by politicians, putting that thought in people's head is destructive. And I want to talk to him more about his ideas on this whole issue of how society is changing, how our thinking, how our vision of what's happening in this world and how we interact with each other is changing as well. Dr. Sewell, I want to make a personal observation that I've experienced in my own life and then quote from your book and get you to make some comments on it about the way people think, the way cultures think, the way groups think sometimes has a big influence on the direction they go and the skills that they tend to gravitate to. I know when I was younger, um, I had a number of Jewish friends, and they would tell me that the expectation of their families is that they would be doctors, lawyers, or entrepreneurs starting their own business. That was what was expected of adult male Jewish uh, families. And so the children tried to live up to that expectation. Didn't always work out because of their own personal interest, but that was the general uh, thrust. Now, I want to read from your book that sort of uh, highlights that as well and gets you to add some additional commentary. Your book reads as follows. Jews have been especially well represented in retailing, finance, and garment production, but by no means equally well represented in heavy industries such as the production of steel or automobile. So I think it's all making the case for what you say. Within groups, there's a pretty good disparity based upon the thinking and culture and promotion of different ideas within a group. Is that right? Very uh, common for, for retailing in many parts of Eastern Europe to be largely in the hands of Jews. Uh, greatly overrepresented in uh, universities uh, by the late 19th century uh one-third of the uh, people at the University of Vienna were Jews, and they were usually the more successful students. Isn't this also true of other minority groups like Asians? And give us some background and understanding of what you've seen in the data and your experience and examples of the Asian population and the Jewish population. Oh, my gosh. The, uh, the, the, some people call them the, uh, the Jews of Southeast Asia. Uh, considering the numbers involved, you might call the Jews the Chinese of Eastern Europe. Uh, but uh, there, are, there are country after country where over half of the retail outlets are by, by people who are Chinese. I mean, Malaysia, uh, Indonesia, Thailand, whatnot. There are countries after countries where most of the billionaires are Chinese. Outside China. Oh, outside China. And this, one of the other things, too, is this, this ties in to some extent with a uh, genetic thing. As of 1994, there were 57 million overseas Chinese and 1 billion people in China. The, overs- the 57 million produced as much wealth as the billion people in China. Well, let me quote from another section of your book. It says, statistical underrepresentation or overrepresentation of various groups is not particular to the United States or to our times. For centuries, there have been countries where most members of various professions and most business owners and whole industries have been members of some subordinate minority group. So in other countries at other times, minorities have taken hold of a certain segment of society, of certain segments of business, and have become dominant in that. 
Let's talk about that in some other countries and examples and research you've talked about. And what happens if somebody tries to take away uh, those minority um, assets, those uh, areas where certain people have actually developed uh, skills and success? Tell me about what happens in those environments. Oh, my gosh. And here, here you see something that ties in with a desire to confiscate the wealth of the wealthy. They did that in Uganda. The people from uh, India and Pakistan uh, dominated uh, modern industry in that, in that country. Eventually, of course, the politicians uh, decided that they, they should be uh, expropriated. They were expropriated. They were sent out, uh, not allowed to take any wealth with them of any significance. And all the stuff that was left there, their businesses and so forth, went, went to the Ugandan. The Ugandan economy collapsed. So here's an example where the majority imposed these restrictions, this elimination of wealth and business position of certain minorities that were successful, even though they were in the minority in those countries. Well, what happened after that wealth was expropriated and these people were actually moved out of the country. What happened then? Did the taking of wealth uh, damage them irreparably so that they became victims? What happened? These people arrived uh, uh, destitute, mostly in England. Uh, and within a decade, they were on their way to prosperity again. The same thing with the Cubans. Uh, here, that when Castro took over... Castro uh, takes over in 1959, a million Cubans leave with almost nothing. Yes, and he left behind all the wealth they had in Cuba. You fast forward a half a century, and the uh, Cuban-American businesses in the United States had a revenue that was larger than the revenue of the entire nation of Cuba. Even though, And, and they weren't, in, in the United States, they weren't driving 1950s cars in the 21st century. <laughs> So let's take some of these concepts that we've talked about, that disparities in outcomes and within cultures uh, across countries, across the ends on time, are not due to racism, it's not due to genetics, it's not due to biases. Um, let me quote one last area, and let's talk about how this applies in the real world and how it's so applicable today. Because in your book, you state, with the prevailing social vision came a more ju non-judgmental approach to behavior. In other words, behaviors have changed in this country because we think differently. And you go on to say, as well as multiculturalism, a de-emphasis on policing and punishment, and you explain that this is demographically based and a fair share for all. That's the way the new thinking is that has kind of created this corrosive destruction of our society. So tell me how all this sort of fits together and how it has changed. Uh, our thinking is really much changed, but also um, how this has crept into our policy. But the idea is we'll, we'll carry it out in policies. And the classic place where in public housing projects, uh, people today think of the public housing projects as really uh, just a bedlam and uh, violence and so forth. Drug dens and so forth. Yeah. I remember in the 1940s, one of, one of our relatives was admitted to a public housing project in New York. And we were so proud because back in those days, you got admitted because even though you were just a working person, you had a good record. You, 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 had, a, you had a steady job. Uh, women with, uh, with, with, uh, with uh, fatherless children were not admitted. 
and so on. And so it was not just that the, that the place was good. It was that it was, it was an honor that he'd passed these tests to get to get into these places. Let's bring this whole discussion into a much more tangible, understandable issue in today's world. Because you also say in your book that in the United States, the murder rates, the rates of infection with venereal diseases, the rates of teenage pregnancies were among those things that the social pathologies were in steep declines that suddenly reversed themselves in the 1960s. In other words, the world was getting better in these areas of critical social interactions, but then they reversed themselves in the 1960s. And you use one example that I want you to talk about of how different the world was in 1965 versus 1977. And you've used that example before, but it's related to two electrical blackouts, if you will, and how the population responded in 1965 with a certain moral compass. And by 1977, uh, the environment was entirely different and the moral understanding, the social compact, if you will, of how we dealt with each other totally changed. So give us a little bit of understanding of the difference between those two periods of time, 1965 and 1977. This was, this was one of the many things that turned, uh, turn, turned to the worst in the 1960s. There's a whole slew of them. Uh, Stephen Pinker has a book about uh, international uh, murder rates. Mm-hmm. And he said the general trend over the centuries is for the murder rate to go down. And but in but in the 1960s, the rate did a U-turn, as he put it. It, it went it turned went right right up, and this was common across Western societies. The first line of defense is morality, uh, and the law as a statement of what the principles are. You delegitimize that, and all you've got are the police. Mm-hmm. There aren't that many police. That you know, you, you could double the number of policemen. And if you destroy the, the, the morality, uh, you're not getting anywhere. So in 1965, people who'd grown up, let's see, 65, that's going to be dominated by people who'd been through. The adults in 65 remember the Depression. Yes. They remember the Second World War. Yes. They've had the experience of rebuilding the country yes. in the 1950s. And they take for granted what we would now term traditional morality. Is that yes, correct? Yes. You just don't steal things. Yes. You don't destroy property. Yeah. Well, now, another, another example, yeah. there's exchange buffet restaurants that I mentioned. Buffet, you, you go in and you pick up, you go through the line and pick up your own food and then you break, bring your dishes over there and then you come to the cashier and you tell the cashier what, 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 how much you owe. And, and, and uh, they lasted for 78 years. In the 1960s, they collapsed. Because people no longer were honest. In England, it was even more dramatic because they really sort of set the standard for self-controlled societies. And, of course, if you have a lot of self-control, you don't need a lot of government control. Right. But if you don't have it, the government is not going to be enough by itself. And the government itself is often... uh, Tainted, as it were, by, by these same ideas that you, you, you. For, for example, in, in London in 1954, there were a grand total of 12 armed robberies in the city of London that year, at a time when anybody could buy a shotgun with no questions asked. Fast forward a couple of decades, and they're at 1,400 armed robberies in London, despite some of the most strict gun control laws in the world. It's amazing to me how fast society can change from 1965 where 
You had a blackout and people were peaceful to 1977. Only 12 years later, and you have riot and looting and destruction of property. Um, how does this happen so fast, or has it been a buildup over uh, many decades that we just didn't notice? Well, it, 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 it was going, I mean, it was, these ideas weren't invented in the 1960s. Right. But the, but, but the number of people who progressively moved towards uh, those ideas uh, greatly increased, and the whole political and intellectual scene was very different. So ideas matter, what people think matters, the propaganda that gets into their heads from the news media, from politicians, from their own culture that has been inculcated with the idea of victimization or other radical ideas has a big impact, and we're seeing that go on in today's world. So let's come back and get into this. It's fascinating, but let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back on America's Web Radio. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on The Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Whether cruising the Strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Hey folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday, 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember folks, I'm not angry, I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. I want to continue the discussion with Senior Fellow of the Hoover Institute, Thomas Sowell, talking about, now, I want to get into the African-American experience in America. I'm white, you're black, Dr. Sowell. Tell us about the American experience, because I want to start off by reading a segment of your book again that says about plain facts. It's sort of the lost history, if you will, that no one wants to talk about in today's progressive society. But you say the plain fact is that the black poverty rate declined from 87% in 1940 to 47% in 1960 prior to the great expansion of the welfare state that began in the 1960s under the Johnson administration. And as late as 1969, two-thirds of all black children were with both parents. Now, that changed fairly dramatically afterwards, didn't it? Because there was a far more modest reduction in poverty rate among the blacks after Johnson's administration, so you write in your book. And that massive war on poverty programs, when it began, it didn't do any good to help accelerate the advancement of the black community. And you say that by 1995, only one-third of black children were living with both parents. And among black families in poverty, 85% of the children 
had no father present. So what really happened during this period of time in the 1960s that so dramatically changed? Was it the welfare system? Was it a change in mentality? Give us your perspective on all this. Well, the welfare state itself happened, but more than that, it's the welfare state vision. The idea that uh, the world owes you something takes off. And it, happens, it happened in Britain where the underclass is white. It's amazing, the, 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 the parallels. And, and similarly, the, the nation, the, the notion with schools. Uh, in, in Britain, kids in, in, in low-income neighborhoods uh, who want to learn get beaten up by, the, by, by, the, by, their, by their classmates because that's regarded as class treachery. Over there, it's class that's the big deal. Here, it's race. But the net result is the same. Dr. Sol, give us your perspective growing up. You went through this cycle from poverty to where you are today, a very successful intellectual thought leader in this country. Um, what happened to you as you were going through this process? Were you inhibited by your background and culture? Give us your personal story. Well, actually, when I first got to Harlem, I, I was not regarded as a pretty smart kid because I'd come out of the South. And back in those days, the Southern uh, education was so inferior to the Northern education that... Uh, oh, you were behind when you were Oh, alive. my gosh. I was... Uh, in North Carolina, I was uh, among the top students in the class. And in my first uh, year in New York, I was trailing whoever was the second worst student in the class. <laughs> How old were you when you moved from North Carolina up to Harlem? Nine. Nine. Okay. So, but somewhere in there... You get a library card and you start reading and, oh, and yes. you become a good student. And what is the reaction of your your family and your neighbors and so forth as you begin to become a good student? Well, I, the neighbors didn't, didn't really know that. Oh, the family, was they, they, they were so pleased. Mm. And I still remember what a to-do they made when I was promoted to the seventh grade. I wondered why. And someone said to me, you've now gone further than any of us. And the, and the economics was not, was not the reason. I mean, there's no question that blacks in the 1960s had a higher standard of living than blacks in 1940. So we kind of lost the history of 100 years of black progress in the United States after the Civil War and all the changes in uh, Reconstruction and the uh, civil rights laws and the uh, 13th and 14th Amendment. How did we lose all of this history um, and then implement a new belief that it was the welfare state that has made such a difference when, in fact, we see a reversal of the morality within various communities because the government has stepped in. We've replaced a father with a, with a check from the government, and we've seen such destruction of the black community in central city areas. So how did we, how did we lose this? What were those people thinking and these are not stupid people. Now, I, I don't believe that all of them are lying. I believe that they've, they've heard what other people have said and they've repeated it, and they haven't bothered to check the facts. Okay, let's look at the progress of the black community that occurred after the Civil War and all the changes this country was doing to try to accommodate uh, the black community to give it more opportunity, more freedoms, more liberties. And let's talk about that lost history of the 19th century, because you write in your book about this mass migration from the south to the north and the impact that it had. And you state, as blacks in northern cities became more acculturated to the norms of the larger society, 
uh, racial barriers began to erode. In Illinois, as an example, restrictions on access to public accommodations for blacks were removed. In Detroit, blacks had been denied the right to vote in 1850, as an example, but they were voting in the 1880s, and in the 1890s, the blacks were being elected to statewide offices in Michigan. And even the 1880 census showed that in Detroit, as an example again, it was not uncommon for blacks and whites to live next door to each other. So with the progress that was going in this period of time, and you've documented it now with facts and figures all the way up to the 1960s, where continued expansion, the continued um, solidification of the black family, of um, reduced poverty rates, of increased opportunities, all that was happening. But what occurred to sort of create a retrogression of this whole progress that was happening for 100 years? Well, in Washington, D.C., for example, uh, blacks had been able to go to various restaurants, uh, theaters, and, and so on, uh, prior to the mass migrations that began in the early 20th century. When I first arrived in Washington, blacks could not go to those things in the, in the 19, 1950. So things had gotten worse. Oh, yes, yes. And, and it's not so much the, the, the movement of blacks to the north in, 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 the, in the 19th centuries. It was blacks who were in the north, which are very small populations. Uh, and they're surrounded by a vastly larger white population. And with other groups in similar situations, uh, you get you get an, a, um, a, a acculturation by the smaller group to the norms of the larger group over a period of time. So it wasn't a, a, con- a big big mig- big migrations, but the blacks, for example, at the end of the nineteenth century in New York, most blacks in New York had been born in New York, and so you you had a very different population than you had when you have massive numbers of people. So what you're saying, it wasn't necessarily the mass migration, but the exposure to a different environment and somehow the behavioral change of the black community changed. And you're saying that as a black man, that is the the attitudes and the behaviors of the black community influenced by politics and policy was a major impact on what happens in more recent decades. Well, the South is a different culture. And, and I, again, to some extent, I mean, it was an example of that, that, I, that my education was just not the same as the education of kids who'd been in Harlem all along. So it took me, you know, a year or two to catch up. I mean, for example, yeah. I, I, a story that I've told so many times uh, that, uh, and, uh, that that my uh, family found a kid, a black kid in Harlem who was very uh, uh, well-educated and so forth, and they made it a point to, to that he should, he should meet me and Show me the ropes. And he took me uh, to a public library at the age of nine. I had no idea what a public library was. And it was only with great uh, reluctance that was I persuaded to take out a library card and borrow a couple of books. But, of course, that was a turning point. Let's go back to this whole issue of social justice that we hear so much about today and the redistribution of wealth. You have some very interesting ideas on this. In fact, You state that this whole idea of redistribution of wealth, the income from uh, wealth, is very unlikely that, you know, maybe you can take away uh, material wealth, but that intellectual wealth, wealth and work ethic and other aspects of the human nature and personality, government can't take that away. Uh, Please explain. I've used the example so far of the... uh 
of the Cubans, you know, right. and of the uh, East Asians. But they're all over the places. In the, in the 15th uh, century, in the end of the 15th century, Spain decided to expel all Jews. And as often happens in these days, they're not allowed to take any wealth with them. And so they, they go to various places, including the Netherlands. Uh, and in, in, over time, they again rise to uh, uh, pr- prosperity in the Netherlands, helping to increase the Netherlands economy. The Huguenots in uh, uh, France were uh, being persecuted. They flee to England and Switzerland, uh, and they take their skills with them. Now, prior to that time, France was big. There, there, were, there was no uh, um, watch industry in England prior to the arrival of the Huguenots. So now the, the British could buy their uh, watches from London instead of from France. And moreover, the uh, London watchmakers could compete in the international market with the French watchmakers. And in Switzerland, this is what helped Switzerland to become and remain to this day the dominant watchmaking country in the world. I mean, you, you, you can't confiscate source of, 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 the, of their wealth. You can confiscate. And, and I didn't, although I didn't go into it in this book, uh, this is true of, of people who uh, want, want to do this on a local community level. I mean, you know, Detroit was once a prosperous place. They followed policies that drove the prosperous people out. And, the prosper, and then, of course, they had, they had to leave all their businesses and so forth in Detroit. That was of no use without the people who knew how to operate it. Those people, I'm sure, have done much better. Detroit has never fully recovered from that. So let me read from your book about uh, redistribution of wealth or confiscation of wealth. Because you state physical wealth is a product of human capital, and in, which includes knowledge, skills, talents, and other qualities that exist inside the heads of people where it cannot be confiscated. So... That government can't reach there. They can take what's already existing, but they can't take future wealth that people can create. People are naturally talented. And so we get back to the central question then of what is social justice. It's certainly not what the progressive use today. It seems more like social justice is access to these, this human capital, the training, the experience, the development of various skills and that really goes back to education, doesn't it? Encompasses education, Encompasses but, it's not, it. but it's not limited to that. You, all, all you can do, you can't give anybody an education. You can offer them an education. You can show them where the public library is. That, that's right. But that, but that, but that, that's that's it. Something else. Uh, so social justice is an actual impediment to acquiring human capital, because. If you're, what it tells you is that the reason you have less is because people have malevolently kept you from, from having the, uh, access to, 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 to all the good things in life. And, that, and if, if that's the case, why in the world should you knock yourself out, learn a whole new culture, develop whole sets of skills and so forth, sacrificed in the present for the future, when it's going to mean nothing? Dr. Sol, you have a fascinating perspective on history with example after example to prove your point. Uh, I want to hear more, and I'm sure our audience does as well. So let, we'll be right back for the final segment of Healthcare Insight right after this commercial. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. 
As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from Warriors to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio and Healthcare Insight. For those of you who have been listening, not just this week, but in the last several weeks, you know that we have sort of strayed off the path of talking specifically about health insurance and health care reform and focusing more on the underlying causes that are changing this country that make it very difficult to talk about free market, um, personal responsibility, um, engaging in dialogue that makes any sense uh, by having a, an honest debate about issues. And today we've been talking, and I feel like I'm at the knee of uh, a great man of wisdom who has lived his life uh, as, a, uh, as a scholar but came from very poor background. And he's got a different perspective. Uh, he is a black um, uh Intellectual, uh, works at the Hoover Institute, a, a very uh, prestigious think tank, and he can give us a different perspective than the traditional uh, black leaders of today. So let me uh, ask you, um, Dr. Soule, can you give me an example of how people's thinking and the policies and the promotion that you're a victim uh, can have on real people and real choices that they might make in life. One of, two of the stories I've heard that really pains me greatly, mm-hmm. a couple of young uh, black guys, there's two different guys and two different sets of stories, uh, express a desire to be, become a pilot. And they say, I, I thought about joining the Air Force, but I realized that the white people are not going to let me become a pilot. And they're saying this after there was a whole squadron of black fighter pilots in World War II. And after there have been black generals in the Air Force. But this vision that they're, that, they're, that they're bombarded with tells them that that's not possible, that something that's already happened is not possible. Why in the world would you put yourself through that if you thought that at the end of it all, they're going to say, no, we're not going to let you fly any of our planes, damn it. So you've got some very interesting statistics that you've uh, developed on black poverty, uh, numbers that we don't hear in any forum, on TV, in the news, in any reports at all about black poverty versus white poverty. Give us some of those data points. My favorite uh, statistic in there is that uh, the poverty rate among blacks as a whole is 22%. Mm -hmm. Among whites as a whole is 11%. 
And among black married couples is 7.5%. And, and black married couples have never had a, a poverty rate as high as 10% in any year since 1994. So your answer in data points to the obvious, doesn't it? That what works for everybody else to get out of poverty would work for every community, including the black community. That is, get an education, don't have kids until after you're married, and, um, you know, hit the books and stay up on things that are going on in the world around you. Be educated. Well, yes, and the things that, that work for other people work, work, tend, tend to work pretty generally. Okay, let's talk about a topic that's actually in the current um, Biden administration in this Congress. It's been around for a while, but it's now taking root, and we may see some bills passed in Congress about reparations. And reparations obviously are coming out of some level of resentment and the hangover of slavery in this population and the feeling of entitlement of the black community for the um, sins of racism. What are your feelings about reparations? You you can imagine somebody whose parents, great-grandparents, came here in the 1880s after the Civil War being asked to give reparations to people. (laughs) yeah, uh, even in the even in the antebellum South, most whites did not have slaves. The cost of one male adult slave was more than the average white person earned all year. So they weren't all living in terror with the, with, with their plantations and all the rest of it. Uh, it's insane. The other thing, I have a slight um, sidebar in there on the history of slavery. Mm-hmm. The history of slavery slavery existed all over the world for thousands of years among all sorts of people as far back as the history of the human species goes. It's one of many evils that the left tries to localize when, when in fact, it is, a, it is a universal evil. So is the history of slavery in this country not so much that we had slavery, because as you say, it existed around the world and has been with us for a long time, including slavery going on today, but that we made such great efforts in this country to eliminate slavery as part of the dominant economic structure of the South and as a recognized evil in the world. So is it just that we work so hard to get rid of it, or is there more? Uh, that's, That's part of it. But more than that... As much as slavery is repudiated around the world today, prior to the 18th century, I know of no serious effort to abolish the institution anywhere. 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 Not in Africa, not in, not oh, in the Arabian Not world. in Africa in the 21st century. Mm. Uh, Adam Smith wrote in 1776 that the only place in the world where slavery had been abolished completely was Western Europe. And so the idea that this is something that the United States had that nobody else had or, or the other, other countries that didn't have, uh, it's been estimated that there are more slaves in India than in the entire Western Hemisphere. And that's, quite, and that's before and after Columbus got here. Right. Dr. Sol, even in your own data, it shows that black household income is only 55% of white income. Doesn't that indicate that something else needs to be done? Uh, people of goodwill wanting to create some better equity, if you will. Does that require a redistribution of wealth? What is your interpretation 
of those kinds of numbers, which apparently really haven't changed since 1967 through at least 2015, that the black um, household income has been roughly the same at 55% of white income. So how would you address this kind of disparity? One way would be to uh, get rid of the welfare state. One of the problems with those kind of numbers, which I go into in a different chapter on numbers, is that uh, household and family income statistics have a lot of problems with them. And they don't, they don't reflect, for example, uh, in-kind uh, transfers. Right. Uh, and, and the in-kind transfer is not from only... The go- from government, welfare payments. Yeah, that sort of thing. But more than that, the in-kind transfers are among the reasons that people don't have to earn more money. Okay, Dr. Sowell, let's talk about something that is really current in our politics today. We are seeing it in elected officials over and over again. And this great debate that we seem to be on the cusp of, whether it's socialism slash Marxism, progressivism, whatever you want to call it, we've got a lot of elected officials at the national level now that are promoting the idea somewhere between socialism and Marxism. We have elected officials who are self-identified as Marxist. We have the um, Black Lives Matter organization, which has become a very powerful voice in the Democratic Party, led by an avowed Marxist. So let me read a section from your book and let you comment on it. You say in the book, the most spectacularly successful political doctrine in the 20th century was Marxism. Yet, if the wealth of the rich capitalists comes from exploitation of poor workers, which is the theory behind Marxism, that is, the capitalists taking advantage of poor workers, you say then that we might expect to find that where this happens, there are larger concentrations of rich capitalists and large concentrations of poverty. Yet, the hard facts point to the opposite. Give us a little bit more insight as to this great debate that's going on in our country today where there seems to be an acceptance of socialism and Marxism, and what do we do about it? Well, the United States has uh, five times as many billionaires as there are in all of the Middle East and Africa put together. And so, according to the logic of Marxism, Americans should have a, ordinary Americans should have a lower standard of living than the standard of living of people in the Middle, in the Middle East and Africa. It is just, just the opposite. I mean, Americans on welfare have a higher standard of living than the average person in Africa and the Middle East. I think the, the education system has a lot to do with that. Back when I was quite young, 20 years old, uh, I read a book called China Shakes the World about how the communists took over in China. And in the last chapter, he tries to explain it. He says it's, uh, the education system had a lot to do with it. Now, at the time, it struck, struck me as a very odd uh, explanation. Now that I've had a half a century or so in the American education system, it doesn't strike me as odd at all. Tom, I love your examples. I love the data and the facts that you bring forward. Would you just read a segment to close us out for this hour from your new book on discrimination and disparities? I think this this message hopefully will reach more people uh, through this um, uh, broadcast, and I hope that people will start to listen and take to heart the messages and the experiences and the examples that you've given, uh, because this country seems to be off path. So please read. 
this section of your book for the audience. The last Western nation to end slavery, Brazil, did so in 1888, and the first totalitarian dictatorship arose in Russia in 1917. There was barely a generation between the suppression of one form of monumentally brutal subjugation of human beings and the creation of another. Yet these dehumanizing dictatorships were often founded on stirring rhetoric and lofty visions that resonated with many leading intellectuals in countries around the world. There could hardly be a clearer example of the need for the historic warning, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Thank you, Professor Thomas Sowell. It is truly inspiring to hear your words, your descriptions, the facts that you laid out in your book, Discrimination and Disparages. So we've learned here today some very important lessons that you as a black American have discovered and researched and written so often about that the differences in outcomes is not due to racism, it's not due to bigotry, it's not due to bias, it is due to some natural causes, but the core underneath all that, it seems that your message is it gets back to education and family culture and the promotion and expectations of high achievers. So this bigotry that really is going on in this country is the bigotry and the racism of low expectations of the minority community and packing their head with falsehoods about victimhood, victimization, so that they feel that somebody owes them and that they can't get ahead because it's already predetermined. The predestination is that they are going to fail. That is such a lie that is destructive to this country and your information, your facts, your research, your teachings, your books, your writings all point to that. And we are such indebted to you. So thank you, Professor Thomas Sowell. Please join us again next week at Healthcare Insight on America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman signing off. I hope you'll join us again next week. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.